Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Dr. Leanne Royster, Director of Inclusive Community Development at Elon University, speaking on the topic of violence against women and girls. So... Hi, Jen. Hi. <laughs> it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. You know, maybe get us started wondering if you could share a little bit about you, your background, and the work that you do that's brought you into this conversation. Certainly. Uh, the issue of violence against women, particularly violence against women and girls from historically marginalized communities, is something that has been very close to my heart, I would say, since uh, college, since I first started thinking critically, I think, about issues of systemic injustice in particular ways, and you know, nothing like a good sociology course to <laughs> help spur that in, in uh, some ways. So I think I started doing this work in a lot of capacities uh, when I was in college, and that was, in a lot of ways, in volunteer work with crisis centers as community educator, as a companion to folks who were seeking resources, whether that be medical resources or resources from the criminal legal system or other kinds of things like that. And so from that volunteer capacity, uh, when I graduated, I really wanted to start working in... I think I first considered it to be response work. I didn't think about things in a prevention sort of sense. So even though I had taken a lot of theory around criminal justice and, you know, or as it was termed at the time, um, I wasn't thinking about the prevention side of things, even though I think that the systemic issues, if you, if you think about things from a systemic lens, then you probably are wanting to think about prevention efforts. But all of the work that was available was really geared towards response, so things that were happening after the violence occurred, whether that be, I mean, that's often the way people are involved with the criminal legal system um, or with crisis centers. And so that was the work that was available, and I was working in those systems. And I think it took me years to realize why I was so frustrated uh, with that work, essentially, and not the people in the work, and not the um, not the survivors, and not the people who were doing the work or the advocates, um, but with the system's inability to address the issues causing the violence. And so, I think that's what led me to the approaches that I eventually took in my career and in my personal life uh, was really the lived experience of the work within systems that are failing and contributing to and upholding systems of violence against women and girls, particularly black and brown girls and women in our culture. So thank you for the segue. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So given your areas of scholarship, What intersections have you discovered between race, gender, and violence, particularly within the experiences of women and girls of color? Well, I certainly like to think about the concept of intersectionality, and I always want to give credit you know, where credit is due, citing scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw, when, when you think about concepts of that nature. Sometimes I worry that when folks are talking about intersectionality, they think about it probably not in the way that Kimberly Crenshaw was thinking about it, but they think about it literally as an intersection. So uh, people are women and people are 
people of color. So what does that, you know, and sort of this additive model of oppression, whereas I think that it's important for us to think about the intersectionality of all of these issues, maybe more as a constellation. So all of these things operating together and moving around together. It doesn't mean that I want to reject the, the word intersectionality and, and the concept <laughs> and the theory work that has been done in that field. Um, but I want to help people move beyond, I think, their visual of an actual intersection. And I think we've got to move beyond this sort of additive model of oppression where it's like, well, if you're a, you know, black trans woman, you know, living in a particular geographic, then you have the most oppression. Um, and, and that keeps us focused on the individual experience in term, and rather than thinking about the kinds of systems that are violent towards people of color, trans folks, uh, you know, and all of the ways these things tend to operate together in a constellation that we're all living in, working in, contributing to in all of these different ways. So I think that, that thinking about intersectionality in that way helps us move away from this individual kind of analysis and also hopefully will center the importance of the contribution of people with a dominant narrative identity within that. So sometimes I think also when we're saying things like, oh, you know, let's think about this in terms of intersectionality for black and brown women. Then I think sometimes maybe then white women leave the conversation or um, are not seeing themselves as part of the change agents within systems or part or experiencing, I mean, I'm, I'm less focused on this, but experiencing all of the detriment that comes from a system that would devalue folks in exponential ways as, as we're thinking about all of those intersections. So I guess I would just say, uh, um, or maybe the way that I like to think about Intersectionality is is in just that more of a constellation um, of all of these factors working together to create systems. So if we think about you know all of those identity aspects as a constellation, then we can think about the system as like you know, the galaxy. And so it helps us be able to to focus on that because that's the thing that is creating the movement in that constellation in general. And right now, if we're thinking about and and historically, if we're thinking about the issue of violence against Black and Brown women. That, that galaxy is super problematic in the ways that it's operating around those constellations. So if you were looking for <laughs> my visual metaphor, that would be uh, the, the one that I would use in terms of thinking about all of those intersections. I love your, your visual metaphors. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think that you touched on this a bit, but are there anything, is there anything that you would like to add about the types of violence and the racial disparities within the context of violence against women? Well, I think specifically, we've been talking about violence against women and girls um, who are women and girls of color. And so one of the things that it's important, I think, to shift in the ways that we talk about that in our culture is that a lot of times, uh, nonprofit agencies, uh, institutions of higher education, lot, you know, lots of these sites that are looking around ways to do prevention and response are relying on systems that historically have been um, arm 
homes or institutions of violence against communities of color. And so we can't very well, I'm not saying don't work with the criminal legal system or don't work with law enforcement as long as those are the systems that we have. I think you know, there's, there's work to do within that um, in partnership with folks who are understanding the ways that we must work to dismantle the system even while existing within it. That's a complicated sort of scenario, I think. But to say that communities of color should be relying on the criminal legal system as, an, as the primary avenue of redress around violence is, is an interesting additive violence <laughs> against communities of color. The existence of a system that operates in the ways that it does as a lack of resource to women and girls who are experiencing violence is yet another layer of systemic violence against those communities. And so if you ask me to expand on that, what I would say is that in a lot of ways, the systems that are existing in our culture are disproportionately problematic to women and girls of color. If we know that to be the case, relying solely on those systems as ways to prevent or address violence that is happening in those communities is an additive level of violence, mm -hmm. if, you, if you see what I mean. And, yeah. and so, for example, many uh, women and girls of color would not call law enforcement against, and let me just you know, put a little parentheses, since you can't see my hands making these parentheses <laughs> around this and say, you know, I don't know that we have time today to go into the fact that I'm using this heteronormative analysis, but if we're thinking about um, women of color interacting with men of color in intimate relationships or experiencing intimate violence, then to suggest that the way that they are going to best redress that violence is to interact with the criminal legal system or law enforcement when we know what we know about the violence against communities of color by those systems is problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, so women calling the police on a black or brown partner is probably not something that they feel comfortable with. Um, and so when the agencies or organizations or entities working with communities of color suggest those as ways, they're missing the point in, in terms of how we need to work with the systems. And so working, in, in my view, in my estimation, working with that system to create a different kind of system, creating some sort of community based partnership in which the community leads the initiative around that and how it should operate within the community are the ways to go if you want to work with a system like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of what you've touched on is within the scope of institutional violence. Mm -hmm. And I want to look at a little bit closer to the prison industrial complex, sure. you know, at micro, macro levels. What are some trends and realities of incarceration for women and girls of color? Certainly, uh, and so let me preface this by saying there's a lot of statistics that would be helpful here as well. An important caveat about statistics, I feel, are from knowing the source, knowing the funding behind the source of the data that's been generated, particularly when you're thinking about vulnerable populations such as uh, incarcerated individuals or formerly incarcerated, incarcerated individuals. Um, so I'll just broadly say a few things and then 
you know, if we want to do a follow-up, we can certainly get back to some <laughs> statistics and why I might choose those statistics as opposed to others. But we know that the large majority of women, um, particularly women of color who are incarcerated are uh, for violent offenses, are incarcerated related to uh, defense uh, around a violent partner, a violent family member, a violent known person to them. Um, and so we know that a lot of interaction with the criminal legal system for black and brown women happens around violence that was happening um, in other ways, whether that be um, you know, growing up in their adult life, uh, those sorts of things. And so typically, we don't have provisions in uh, the prison industrial complex for thinking about the ways that we support a holistic um, I don't even know what I want to say there. I definitely don't want to say rehabilitation, but a holistic interaction with a person who has experienced violence, um, even if the experience of violence has also resulted in violence that the criminal legal system would suggest you know, requires uh, a, a prison sentence. Um, so if that's the case, and we know that uh, what we what we need to be thinking about, and I would say we are sorely lacking um, in particular ways, is our avenues to address within the systems education, health, and by health I would use the broadest sense of the term. Um, so I would think about uh, mental health, emotional health, uh, spiritual health, the, the ways that folks move through healing um, from violence uh, in particular ways. Otherwise, uh, we continue the system of oppression by putting people who have had particular experiences in situations where they are continuing to experience systemic oppression and violence. Mm -hmm. And so we know that the large majority of black and brown women are incarcerated, violent crimes, incarcerated ar around that issue. And then again, in this, uh, subjected to this cycle of violence. And so I would say that we could do a lot better. And this is probably for another podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> examining uh, some of the ways that a capitalist economy uses labor from a prison industrial complex system um, is probably a useful place to start in terms of thinking about reallocation of resources. Um, so I, I'll stop right there. There's a total another podcast. Um, uh, I, I'll say one more thing about that, and, and that is about the, the families. So I think, again, focusing on the individual it is important, however, really limited in terms of, so what is the system doing to interact with the children of these women, with the um, other family members of these women. Of um, yeah, I could I could say a lot about that, but I w would say that um, exponential violence happening to children and families around incarceration of loved ones is a particular of particular concern. And if you look at the disparities in statistics between um, white communities and black and brown communities around rates of incarceration, sentencing, um, the kinds of uh, resources that are available in engaging that system in the first place for folks who have experienced violence, uh, the disparities are 
quite striking. And so no matter where you get your data, um, and I would suggest a number of uh, particularly good ways to think about that as opposed to the ways that are typically available, um, it is hard to ignore the disparity along racial lines. And so that's something I would say that bottom line we've got to pay attention to and is a layered level of violence against black and brown communities that is pervasive in contemporary US culture and has grown from the 80s in ways that is staggering. I mean, related to our war on drugs. <laughs> that's what we want to, yeah. that's how we want to frame that. I have so many popcorn thoughts. I'm trying to like <laughs> So. All right, let me, let, let me try to organize. Um, you know, I read an article not too long ago, and they were talking about, so you have women who have been incarcerated because of violent crimes. And as you said, it's typically um, statistics show that it's in defense. So then what does that look like for women of color who are incarcerated and they are being managed by men, you know, the the guards in the prisons statistically are at a higher percentage of male representation and higher percentage of white male re representation. Right. And, and so that's part of it. That's part of exactly what I was saying, which is that what we know about the ways that women then are forced to interact with that system produces things within the system such as increased punishment for uh, things that are deemed insubordination, which I would just say is our perception about how and who should be able to speak back or advocate for themselves or um, have any sort of sense of agency within this culture. And I would say that there's a, a strong layer of implicit bias happening there for men, particularly white men, engaging women, particularly women of color, around asserting agency within a system that is already oppressive in all the ways that uh, we have talked about. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I mean, I, the rates at which, for example, women of color are punished within the um, incarceration system for the same behavior as A, white women, or B, I mean, you could take both of those categories and think about it as compared to men who are incarcerated. So, you know, a one of the popcorn thoughts that have come up is right now in the media, there, you know, there is a young woman, I think she's 16, that has now been sentenced to, what, 51 years before, mm -hmm. she, you know, and it was in defense of her perpetrator. Rapist. Yeah. Yep. And then, conversely, you have in the media, they're about this young man, white man, who paid, what, $400? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a slap on the wrist, don't do that again, and off he goes. Yeah. And the young woman is a young woman of color. Mm -hmm. So, like, what, I don't know what the question is that I'm trying to ask, but... 
Well, I can I can respond <laughs> without. I, I also want to hear a question. Uh, so go ahead. Actually, I mean, I guess you know, in in what they in what ways does that systemic bias affect you know the outcomes of women and girls of color starting as early as you know primary school all the way through adulthood like what does that do to family structures so i think the primary thing that happens is it indicates a value or worth to the culture and i would say that it is absolutely reflective of white folks' understanding of the value of black and brown communities to this culture. I mean, I, broadly, that's a really broad thing for me to be able to say in a, in a short podcast time. It's certainly <laughs> way more complex than that. But I think that one thing that white folks can do when trying to make sense, if they are trying to make sense, which they should be, of this kind of disparity is you know, if you read a story like that, your example about the currently that's in the news about the 16-year-old and that egregious sentence um, for defense against her rapist, white people can very quickly flip that narrative in their head by imagining that that person is white. And as soon as that happens, that becomes a different sort of connection and empathy that happens for most folks, um, for, for most white folks, that tells them something about implicit bias, right? That tells us something as a culture about who we value to be participating in and members of and have agency within a society. Yeah. Right, and I would just say that it's it's really, really hard to be out of that when you exist in a culture that was created strategically and structurally on this basis of racial oppression. I mean, it, it should not be a surprise to us that we are seeing these disparities now in our culture in a time when people say, naively and ignorantly that we are post-racial or what you know the, these phrases that people say because the civil rights era happened um, that we want to be in this in this other sort of place I am not saying that there haven't been moments and pockets of us critically examining how we have done this systemically in the United States but I would say, I have no idea how much time of that critical examination and structural addressing it would take to undo systems that were created for that very purpose. Do you know what I mean? So, so it's really challenging to think about how a system of um, a criminal legal system that was created in the way that the one was in the United States can exist without the racist oppression that we see. Mm -hmm. When it was created for that. I, mean, that's, I think people say, oh, well, the system is broken or there's all of these problems. The system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. 
And so if we don't like that, if we want to make change there, then we've got to look at some of the foundational elements of the history in our culture within the creation of systems to be able to just work to dismantle the parts. And it, you know, it's up to, I think, a lot of us. I don't know that I would be able to answer this question. Um, is it possible to work within the system, or should the system be completely dismantled? You know, th there's all sorts of ways that you can think about the kind of change that needs to happen. And again, 30-minute you know moment for us to <laughs> chat. I'm not sure I can I can um, delve too much into that, but I'm also not sure that I that I or anyone necessary any one person or one collective group has the answer um, to that question. It's going to take a lot of different kinds of work. I, I would say that the one thing we don't center enough is that uh, is the work of white people within that. And so if there's one thing that I would say in a series that you're doing about black and brown women for black and brown women by black and brown women and girls um, is the, to acknowledge that I am a white woman <laughs> and, and it is, and part of my role within that is to not take up too much space and also when I have space to take up is to create a call for white individuals to be in a space in a way that is useful and productive as told us by black and brown women and girls. Mm -hmm. so, so again, in terms of sort of having the answers or how do you do these kinds of things, I think listening some more um, is an important thing to do. But if you're not aware of the disparities in the first place or you can't, you can't see them, begin to find ways to develop the empathy to be able to see them. Mm -hmm. And so that shift, I think, about the racial difference um, is one way that, that white people can begin to do some, some searching about who is valued, who was who able to have agency, and who systems you know, created around white supremacy broadly um, have determined who that is for us, all of us collectively, um, as a people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and again, the so my turn. This could be a whole another podcast, but wondering, I would gamble that most white folks don't realize that the entire like the organized piece of law enforcement was built out of slavery, and that you know that is why, as you said, it's doing exactly what it was structured to do, mm -hmm. and. Again, the whole other conversation. But, you know, the book by Michelle Alexander, The mm -hmm. New Jim Crow, and it talks about, and I think that you mentioned it earlier about the war on drugs and how mm -hmm. that has led to, you know, black, brown, and black and brown men being incarcerated at critical pace, right? So there is a lot of narrative around that, but like how does, where is the space within the new Jim Crow um, narrative to talk about what that impact is on black and brown girls and women? Right, and, and I, th I would say just um, 
I think a succinct way to answer that question is that there ought to be more space and that that's one of the things, so two of the ways that the concept of intersectionality that we discussed before can address that is to make sure that we are thinking both at a point in time historically, so your reference to how systems were created. Um, so there's an important way to think about class within that system, uh, racial, you know, uh, social racial constructs within that system. Um, there's there's a good number of pieces there that go into that constellation of the creation of that system and, and why. And so we can't ignore um, the the function of capitalism within that. You know, we can't ignore those kinds of pieces. Um, and I would say that then in this contemporary discussion, if we're moving from sort of the point in history from the war on drugs. Um, in the 80s, and if you could see me, you could see the air quotes about the war on drugs, and that was couched in a particular way, I would say, for um, particular reasons. Um, then where, has, where have we not highlighted the narrative around black and brown women and girls. And so I mean that both in the sense of not to um, minimize the violence that is happening, particularly to black and brown men um, in our culture, but the, the impact that, that, that not only that violence has on black and brown families, um, but then the erasure of black and brown women, girls, trans folks, I, you know, I think gender is this layer that we haven't centered mm -hmm. in that conversation in particular ways, whether we are talking about the impact on um, families by that systemic injustice or whether we are talking about the interaction of those relational pieces and black and brown women themselves. So I want to make sure that we get to you know, a couple more points before okay. we 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 uh, end cap our discussion here. Um, but thinking about okay, so you have black and brown women, well, black and brown girls who are at you know at rates of disparity involved in different types of justice systems. Mm -hmm. um, Moving through to adult women, um, what does that, you know, given all of the context that we've talked about, what does it look like for them and their experiences in having a pathway to reentry? Uh, you mean uh, once, once women they, have interacted with the criminal legal system? Yes. So I would say that as is the case uh, for most black and brown folks involved in the criminal legal system, that the implications for being seen as, so if we already know that there's a disparity around our sense of um, the value of agency of black and brown women and girls in our culture, the engagement with a system that disenfranchises people <laughs> in virtually every kind of way, including some basic rights that we like to highlight as Americans, uh, such as voting rights, uh, such as uh, things related to the Second Amendment. And again, you know, all of these are really complex, way more complex than just saying that's about, you know, 
firearm ownership or that's about uh, voting. I mean, voting is a way more complex issue related to how we establish districts, how people, you know, have identification in order to be able to engage. I mean, there, there's a, a hugely layered um, issues related to things like voting rights. But when, when people are engaged in the criminal legal system or have felony status, having those, I think what people consider and like to tout as sort of basic rights of Americans, um, I think the stripping of those rights is really indicative of what we of what we believe about the value of people in our culture and our lack of understanding about what creates interaction with the criminal legal system in the first place. So, you know, how does that, or how have you seen that systemic violence manifest intergenerationally for black and brown women? Well, I would say on virtually every sort of level of identity. So, for example, if you are talking about a family in which there's a person who has been involved in the criminal legal system, potentially um, stripped of voting rights, potentially stripped of the ability to be able to engage affordable housing, the ability to be able to uh, engage work that offers a living wage, you know, all of these kinds of things, then what do we think that, what of course would we think that that would create in terms of this um, path that we call the, the American dream, if you will, or you know, any of those phrases that I think people like to say and that people like to say are accessible to anyone, right? That um, that's a loaded, that's a super loaded statement when we think about the ability to be able to have shelter relies on the ability to be able to get affordable housing and while we have federal systems that support folks in, in helping them get affordable housing, those are not available to people who have potentially, to people who have engaged and interacted with the criminal legal system. You know, the things like, um, other kinds of federal assistance, or even the ability to be able to vote on people who would support initiatives like that in the area in which you live are not available to people who have interacted with the criminal legal system without a good amount of other kinds of system maneuvering, which people aren't always able to do or afford to do. And so then the implications are generational, right? So if you're not able to build wealth, if you're not able to have safe or affordable housing, if you're, if you're food insecure in all of those ways, we know that health outcomes that these produce for small people interacting with, and I just mean young people, um, interacting with um, this family or interacting with that potential, the ability to be able to go to school and regularly get to school, to be, the be ability to be able to um, live in an area where you continue to have access to quality education, where you're um, able to know that you are having meals, you know, all of those kinds of things. And I think that people, um, often miss all, all of those intersectional pieces, if you will, to come full circle to this idea of intersectionality. Now this is really engagement with the uh, criminal legal system is really about health and housing and voting and mental health and resources and all of these kinds of ways. And, and we're missing that. 
we're missing that in the conversation about you do a crime, you pay a debt to society, whatever that means, and then you are free to do all the things that anyone else is free to do. That's, that's just a lie. Mm-hmm. That's not true. And so, what, I mean, what, what you're describing is systems that have a lifelong effect on individual persons, on families, that the systems just keep grinding it along. It just becomes exponential, and it becomes a system that uh, creates certain kinds of conditions for folks who weren't the folks who engaged the system in the first place. So I'm thinking about the children. Um, I'm thinking about um, you know, family members who are in a different financial situation immediately or without warning because of those sorts of things. And so that's generational in the sense of all of the um, things that I talked about before, but largely in a capitalist society around building wealth. And that's very different than income. And so I think having the conversation about how we have historically historically barred black and brown families from being able to build wealth in the ways that white families have been able to do so would say a lot about how we have also developed and sustained a criminal legal system like the one that we have. So, um, and then I would say that that's really, that many folks miss that in the analysis of, well, that person had the same opportunities or advantages that I did, why can't that person be able to do that? But that's why I say moving away from that individual conversation is really important in thinking about the systemic ways um, that systems of oppression operate within this culture are really critical. So we've come to our last point. Okay. (laughs) There's a hundred more points. (laughs) I know, there there could be, there could be. the theme, you know, as mentioned, the theme of the podcast is, um, you know, learning, lifting, leading, social equity for and by black and brown girls and women, and it's aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh back in October, and, you know, this is something that I'm asking, you know, all of our guests, I'm going to reframe it a little bit for you. Okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, the question is... Can you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, leading to bring about social equity? But, so you have self-identified as a white woman. Mm -hmm. And so talk to some white people out there. (laughs) Tell them, you know, what can can we, we be doing? Yeah, um, my suggestion to white folks in general, and, and I will just, I will preface this by saying that's really who I feel I can and should be talking to. I do not feel um, that necessarily I should be saying to black and brown women <laughs> what they should be doing within, um, uh, within this issue. However, I think that uh, speaking to white people from white people, as I've seen in my work to be a critically important component of this work, and I would say broadly, shift the lens, right? I mean, that this isn't about um, equal distribution. So you mentioned the word equity in 
the, the broad effort that you're talking about here. And so I would say to white people, really understand the concept of equity as opposed to equality. And I know that a lot of the framing um, within the US context is done around equality. And I would say that that just doesn't work when, when white people and white systems, and so I mean white systems broadly, because I think we all participate in systems of white supremacy, but is it, it is incumbent upon white people <clears throat> to be able to work to dismantle those. And so if we know that, if we know how systems are created and we educate ourselves about the ways that systems were created, then we can no longer talk about equality. We've got to be talking about equity. We have to be talking about inclusion in a way that doesn't mean everyone equally, but means creating systems that are equitable. And in order to do that, we would have to address some of the disparities. And that's for the good of all people. If you look at any kind of statistic, so I don't want to suggest that white people should be necessarily centering <laughs> their own um, outcomes in this. But if white people need an incentive to become involved beyond being a decent human and uh, working to develop equity in all sorts of ways so that people have what we're saying or what we're believing that folks are able to have in a society such as ours. Um, if you need an incentive beyond that, you can look at any kind of statistic and know that all people suffer when we have the kinds of disparities that we have across any system. So we could look at healthcare, we could look at education, we could look at you know any of these broad systems that we have. We are all suffering related to the kinds of disparities. Now, black and brown communities are suffering at exponential rates, as I said before. However, it is incumbent upon white people to create the kind of change in a system of white supremacy that would allow for equity. And so I won't go into you know, the, some of the ways that we can analyze the difference between equality and equity and that in you know, my answer to your final question, I would encourage folks to do that and to think about how those things show up and are manifest in the work that they do, you know, in their careers, in their fields, in their home life. Think about segregation. How proximal are you to communities of color, people of color in your life? And, and while I'm not a person who tends to um, except the response that many people say, like, well, my, you know, my best friend is black, or my, you know, my um, aunt is Native American, so I know everything there is to know. I, I, that's usually said in defense to something racist that has been said or done, and, and that's usually not a good way to think about it. But an important thing to think about is how much do you know? How much can you develop empathy? How much can you be and understand the way things are happening if you aren't proximal to what's happening, if you are segregated in every aspect of your life, if in your board meeting you look around and see everyone who looks just like you or comes from the same kind of background in particular ways. So those kinds of things, for that reason, I would say examine the kinds of folks who are in your life and the kinds of institutions and agencies that you are connected with and where you are able to look around and say, hmm, who is not at this table and where you are able to make the kind of change to create the conditions by which white people can have the opportunity to listen to black and brown people about the reality of the violence against them in their lives. So that would be my call. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your perspective and your insight. Um, 
We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I want 20 more podcasts. This is, <laughs> is good stuff, and I'm glad you're having these conversations, um, mostly with um, folks who are completely intimately connected to these issues. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women, with our guest, Dr. Leanne Royster, Director of Inclusive Community Development at Elon University. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work, as well as the Blend Coffee Shop, located in downtown Burlington, North Carolina, for hosting us today.